It's so simple. It's just math. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 281 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week, uh, I am the panel, I guess. I'm Charles Maxwood. Um, if you're wondering where everybody else is, uh, stay tuned either next week or I'll put a link in the show notes to the discussion that as we record this, I'm planning to have on Thursday about that. Um, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Noel Rapid. Hi, everybody. So, Noel, do you want to give us a brief introduction? I know you've been on the show before, but uh, yeah, you've got some new sure. stuff going on. Yeah, uh, my name is Noel Rappin. I am the Director of Development at TableXI, which is a consulting, mostly Rails, but also JavaScript and a couple of other things, and mobile, and design. The designers would get mad if I didn't say and design. Uh, so we do a lot of stuff. Uh, consulting shop in Chicago. Um, I also write technical books, and I have a technical book which is out currently in beta from Pragmatic Press, uh, which is called Take My Money, Accepting Payments on the Web. Awesome. And that's what we brought you on today to talk about is money. And... It, it was it was interesting. You gave a talk at Ruby Remote Conf about this, and then um, I read a few chapters and kind of skimmed the rest of the book. I just didn't didn't have time to completely finish it. But it was funny because when I first thought about money and code, it's just like, well, it's just numbers, right? Mm-hmm. It's so simple. It's just math, and uh, clearly, it's not just math. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it is math. It's also math. But you know, I actually had to do this in my proposal too, because when I when I pitched the book to Pragmatic, um, one of the pushbacks was, and and they pushed back largely just to see if you can explain it. One of the pushbacks was like, well, you know, Stripe already has great documentation. Like, what else is there? And I think that there's you know a couple of things with that. Like, money is math, but it's also like a really weird kind of math that has these very very uh, these real world consequences that are very very important to people. Um, and then the API calls, uh, you know, need to be embedded in this business logic, uh, that, that is very, that can get very complicated, you know, just because you can make the API call to Stripe doesn't mean that you are correctly, uh, storing information that you need in order to be able to refund it or to be able to write reports or to be able to take care of legal or, uh, legal or, uh, <clears throat> sorry. Or in order to be take, to take care of legal or accounting obligations or administration, like there's this whole, you know, when we when we architect code, we sort of hand wave like about business logic. You know, this is the best way to handle business logic. But when you're talking about money, like you are literally talking about the business logic. Like it is the logic that runs the business, and it tends to be the most complicated part of the application. Because if somebody comes to you and says like, "Oh, we just made this great sale." Uh, it's a big customer, but we had to give them a 15% discount. Can we handle that? Like, no, is not an acceptable answer. Right. Well, and it's interesting too, because um, there are all these rules around how you deal with your payment gateway and there are all these rules. So I've set up a few uh, systems either for myself or for other people as a contractor. And yeah, it's like, oh, well, we need to give a refund. And it's like, oh, crap. You yeah, know? I mean, refunds are funny because refunds in some ways are refunds in some ways are more straightforward than charges because they don't in most gateways they don't have to be reauthenticated. Right. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of administrative complexity behind that. Like, who can authorize it? You know, is it a full refund? Refund? Is it a partial refund? Um, can you undo a refund? Like, how do you and how do you account for that in your daily reporting statistics or your inventory? Like, it's just it's 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 amazing. And then also like, unlike 
search algorithms or something like that, like uh, search algorithms may not be the best example, but money has legal obligations that go along with it. Like when you are taking people's money, uh, you know, or when you are taking people's information like that, you are running up against the law very, very fast. And you need to take that into account as well. Yeah, I worked on a contract where we actually had to deal with PCI compliance. And yeah, it was, my rec- yeah, it, it was it was like holy cow. Yeah, my recommendation is to avoid that if at all possible. And the gateways make it easier and easier to avoid having to store that information uh, locally because they have these mechanisms where the customer enters their credit card and the credit card is authenticated by a direct browser AJAX call to say Stripe server, and Stripe Stripe gives you this one time token that you can use. Um, so you don't need to even see the user's credit card number on your server, which is fantastic. Yeah, I really love that. That's what I use as well as Stripe. But uh, I've also gotten into PayPal, and that's a whole can of worms. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's really interesting there because you can kind of see the evolution of how these things, how people have thought about these problems. Because PayPal was a unique, you know, when PayPal started, they were a solution to a specific problem, specifically people were nervous about giving their credit card numbers to every online retailer. So PayPal's original proposition, you know, if I'm remembering it right, was, well, you can just give your credit card to PayPal uh, and then the all the web retailers will just deal with us. And that's, you know, and that's still true. People are still a little bit nervous about it, I guess. But the ways in which people deal with it, the ways in which like Stripe's API deals with that issue with the, the browser checking and things like that are so different than the way PayPal's flow evolved that, that, that PayPal's dealing with PayPal payments just becomes a, a, a completely different thing in its own right because of the, the workflow is so different. So this, this isn't really a problem I hear many people talking about. People just tend to solve it either by going with Stripe or they suffer through whatever they have to suffer through to get PayPal or something else set up. So I'm wondering why write a book about something that people don't even really talk about as a problem that they have? Yeah, this is a weird thing. Um, and I get really interesting responses when I talk about it in public. And I think if, you know, I think that to some extent the book is going to need to sort of find its audience in a particular way. But like when I started on, I did my first really complicated payment gateway application. Not the first one I'd ever done, but the first one that was really kind of complicated about three years ago. And I was really looking for people who had written down ideas of good practice in terms of dealing with the API and things like that. And I really didn't find any. You know, In particular, dealing with things like, how do you manage the case where you need to go to the credit gateway and then you need to touch your database afterwards but you need to be really careful that your database call, nothing in that database call doesn't fail because it's really bad if your database transaction fails after you charge the credit card. Um, and I really couldn't find anything about how about how other people had attacked this problem. And I actually really started to wonder whether I was seeing a problem that nobody else saw or whether I was just like missing something obvious. Um, and eventually came to believe that that people do tend to really muddle through this, whether they realize the specific problems or not, people do have a strong tendency to kind of muddle through this on their own. And in the end, wound up writing a book that I would have really loved to have gotten my hands on three years ago, because it would have saved me a ton of time. Uh, but what happens, like I, I just gave it the, the Ruby Remote Conf talk, I gave a very similar one just last week at Windy City Rails. And a number of people came up to me and said various things of like, 
you know, yeah, I had to do all that. Boy, that was hard. Um, and it, and, and it was kind of like, but you know, now I, now I, so the world seems to divide into, as far as I can tell, the world seems to divide into people who don't realize they need to read this book yet. And people who think they've already solved the problem <laughs> themselves. Like, um, and I think both of those people are going to get helped by this. I think that there's stuff that, that, that hopefully that, that will save you a lot of time, uh, and frustration. Um, you know, when dealing with failures, when dealing with the needs of administration or, or when dealing with, you know, some of the other things that can trip you up or even just dealing with, you know, the simple arithmetic of dealing with money, uh, which can trip you up. So how do you get tripped up on simple arithmetic? Well, money, the, the natural tendency, I think if you, if you don't, if you've never worked with money before, the natural tendency is to represent money as a floating point number because it's got a decimal point and everything typically, at least in the U S and the problem with that turns out that floating point numbers are actually like approximations. Um, and you can simulate this in Ruby really easily by uh, going into IRB and typing 3.01 times five, and you will get like, uh, rather than um, 15.05, you'll get 15.049 repeating uh, because floating point numbers just don't accurately reflect most decimal numbers, even in these like really simple cases. And that's for you know all kinds of arcane reasons of encoding and and trying to mash an infinite set of numbers into a finite set of digits. Um, and the problem with that is there's two problems. One of which is that um, your math can be off fairly quickly, even though the errors are small. Uh, if you're at a significant volume, you can easily start to lose uh, fractions of pennies here and there, and that can actually add up. And also, it makes a quality testing hard. So if your code is dependent on checking for quality uh, and you're doing floating point arithmetic, it, it, there's a good chance it won't work. Um, Ruby has a number of options for this. The one that I like to recommend is the money gem, uh, which uses Ruby's big decimal class internally to represent money as essentially an integer number of cents. Um, but uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it also handles... Um, rounding errors the way that financial institutions uh, handle rounding errors or handle handle rounding uh, which is potentially different than the way you learned it in elementary school so uh, you know the money gem gives you an option as to how you want to round how you want to break ties when you round numbers and and how many digits of precision and things like that uh, and then it gives you an exact representation of the money which uh, saves you from floating point errors which can be hard to predict and and can cause a lot of havoc. Gotcha. I think it's interesting that something, I mean, even, even the simplest part of this that you would think, okay, it's just math. Like even that can get goofed up. Yeah. I mean, you know, we see this table XI uses a, a coding uh, problem. Um, and I, I think I can say this cause we're probably going to change it soon anyway, but the coding problem does use a little bit of monetary arithmetic arithmetic and, it's not much, but it's enough so that if people use floating points instead of integers, they actually do get the wrong answer. Um, and and it's not even and that's not even doing complicated math. It's just adding up a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, prices. And if you use floating point, you get a rounding error at some point. Um, whereas if you use integers, you don't. So I want to go into something that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Just because if it's if there's one thing that's kind of messed stuff up for me, there are two areas in this 
Um, one is basically Stripe callbacks, and we talk about them in a second. But the first part is just when stuff fails, you know, whether it's on my system or the the gateway, you know, gives me a failure error code or something like that, or things like that. I mean, what what do you do, or how do you handle those situations when they yeah. arise? So there are a couple things that uh, I think help. And there are a few that I've found, a couple that I've actually managed to implement in applications and a couple that I hope to the next time I do this um, that I've gotten from other people's experiences. Um, so the problem with failure on a, credit, on a credit card issue is there's sort of two problems, one of which is the credit card fails, but you go on with the, with a transaction anyway and you wind up pushing the sale through even though the credit card failed. Um, I've never actually really had an app that had a significant problem with that. That's actually relatively easy to catch. Um, you just need to know that it's a possibility. Um, and it's actually fairly easy to test for since most of the gateways give you sample credit card numbers or ways to enter sample data that will automatically trigger various fraud or credit card declined uh, conditions so that you can actually, you know, if you're using, uh, if, if you're writing tests that use, VCR or something, so you directly hit the gateway in your tests, you can relatively easily simulate a failure condition uh, so that you can make sure that your code works correctly. Um, <clears throat> the problem that I've that was has tripped me up more in my own work is the payment gateway transaction succeeds, but then the database fails. And like, I've had cases where uh, sort of an innocuous seeming validation in one of the one of the objects that we were saving, like turns out to, we thought we were validating against something that would be always true of the response from the gateway. And it turned out that sometimes the gateway hicked up, hiccuped and sent us slightly different information and the validation would fail and the, the transaction wouldn't save. You know, that was disappointing. Um, I've had that happen. So, yeah. So, you know, I, the thing I just said, the thing I said in my talk was I, I went through every line of code that happened after the payment gateway uh, with the idea that any mistake would be a customer yelling at me, which was kind of motivating. Um, so I have one option. So one thing is you do as little as possible in that situation after the transaction and, and, and really think about whether validations and things like that are, are important enough to block a running transaction. Um, another thing that I think is helpful is to split the job up into a couple of different transactions and use them as different background jobs. Um, so for instance, you, the, the customer submits their form and you, instead of directly doing stuff, you trigger a background job that basically sets up the data that you need to set up to make the payment call. And you have that trigger another background job that actually makes the payment gateway call. Um, and potentially that triggers another background job that does um, you know, a, a mail on success or something like that. The, there are a couple of advantages of that approach. Uh, one of which is that it sort of limits the consequences of failure. Uh, if the payment gateway fails, uh, you still have a record of what you've done to date, and you could potentially rerun that transaction uh, if you fi if you make a fix. Um, and it also helps with error checking. Uh, if you know that, like the second the the payment gateway transact the payment gateway background job is only going to get triggered if the setup succeeds. Um, then there are certain kinds of error checking that you don't necessarily need to keep doing uh, because you know it's not, there are error conditions where it hopefully is just never going to reach this job. So, so that's really um, that's potentially a really 
valuable technique. You do it as a bunch of different small transactions that that get handled by background jobs. You know, they can either spawn their own individual background job or they can register themselves and you have a periodic background job that picks up all the jobs and all, all the transactions in a particular state and tries to move them forward or something like that. So that, that kind of like incremental step through process um, is the way that I'm trying to push uh, the new applications that I might write in this space. Yeah, that makes sense. And I like kind of the step-by-step flow because then you can see which step it actually failed on. Yeah. The other thing is, is that you have those uh, sort of sidelong jobs. And the nice thing about that is that you can also, uh, in a lot of cases with most systems, you can actually rerun them. Right. It makes it, yeah, it makes it much easier to, re- Some a lot of times the gateway fails for a transient reason, network failure or something like that. And to have the ability to very easily have those jobs rerun on failure uh, can be pretty powerful. Um, yeah, and then the other thing is, is that, um, yeah, it just it breaks up the process and makes it much more understandable. <laughs> Another thing about that is to not throw out partial transactions. Um, the natural tendency, and I, I say this because I've I've done it and, and, you know, have production code that does it is to store this whole thing in a transaction in a database transaction. So that the whole thing gets, gets blown away. If you, um, you know, something goes wrong, which is absolutely the right choice for many applications and even many payment applications. But I would also think about doing something particular with logging or with continuing to store database transactions. You're coming back and restoring a database transaction in a failed state or something like that. Um, so that you can go back and see what the failed, tra- failed transaction is. Uh, I'm currently trying to track down what seems to be a very intermittent, possibly credit card failure case on uh, a gateway that I'm using. And I, it, I don't see it often enough to know what it is. Uh, and whatever it, whatever the gateway is sending back, it's not matching our expectations of what the data is going to come back. And I, I keep trying different things to try and you know, get it to trigger an exception notification so that uh, I can actually see a, a live failed response uh, and then try and figure out what's actually causing it. Um, so yeah, you want to make sure that you can try and, and uh, see when those failure states happen so that you can uh, mitigate them. Yeah. I also found that, uh, as you said, a lot of times you get that case where you get information from the webhook that isn't exactly what you expected. And so then it's okay. Well, how do I, figure out what's going on here and how do I fix it? And yeah, I wind up glomming on a whole bunch of if statements or, you know, special Mm -hmm. cases that, you know, may or may not actually help me out. Yeah. I've become a big fan of, of saving as much information from the payment gateway uh, and and like the partial information that leads up to the price calculation and things like that. uh, As much of that stuff as possible, which is a little bit different. Like there's kind of two contradictory save everything things, which is save as little of your user's personal information as you can and save as much information about the transaction, like non-personal information as you can. Um, and I think that also helps too. You, 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 you need to be in a situation where you can recreate the transaction as it was when it happened, you know, even if some of your business logic has changed. Yeah, I wound up using uh, RunScope for a long time for that kind of thing. Because effectively what it does is it you you set up the place where Stripe is sending its uh, request for the 
webhooks. And what it does is it records that and then passes it on to where you told it to. And then you can rerun any of those endpoints getting triggered again. Yeah, that sounds useful. And it's it's nice in the sense that then you can just see from that one perspective what got sent back from Stripe or whatever other gateway you're using. Yeah. You can then re-trigger it and just set it off again and yeah. make sure that the process works as expected. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And you also sometimes even have cases where you need to recalculate stuff, even if you're not sending it, like you might have reports or, or things like that, where you need to like recreate what the processing fee was versus the shipping fee versus the actual like individual item fee, you know, for individual items, if you're doing that kind of transaction. Uh, and, and you also want to like save those partial calculations so that you're not dependent on going back to the code, which might have changed. Right. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues podcast. So your book goes into kind of a mix of we've talked a lot about sort of the technical challenges here um, but it also talks about some of the management and administrative stuff because that's also part of this same system right because we have the behavior of the people involved in the behavior of the the data so to speak yeah you have this sort of long you have this long-term issue where you have all of this data and all this stuff and you have customers, which means you probably have customer service. And in the long term, how you, how well your administrators are able to deal with that custom, any customer service kinds of issues, you know, without having them cause programmer issues, that's going to go a long way towards how well your site runs. And uh, I think we all have a tendency as developers to underestimate the value of that part. We all kind of say, Oh, uh, you know, the admins, we can just train them. They work for us. Uh, we don't have to give them a great UI. We don't have to give them great functionality. Um, and that can lead to some problems. My experience with uh, domain admins um, is that they tend to, they are, especially the you know, customer support uh, domain admins, the good ones, um, they really want to make the customer's problems go away. They really want to fix them and they will do whatever they need to do in the application in order to make that happen. Um, even if that is not exactly how you expect to see the admin tools get used. And even if that means that you know, your, your data winds up in a weird state or, or things happen that you don't expect. Um, so you have this, you know, this sort of tension between giving the admins the tools they need to do their job and yet the more power the admins have, the more abilities the admin have, uh, the more likely they are to put something in a weird state or to, you know, change uh, some value or something that 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 you know affects the site in other ways. So, you know, administrators can usually in this kind of system, administrators can break certain business rules. You know, typically they can, for instance, uh, authorize transactions at different prices. 
uh, or you know authorized discounts or authorized refunds. Uh, and you need to have a way to manage that that, that that lets them do the things that needs to be done, but also allows you to sort of validate the integrity of the data in the system, even when you know these kinds of changes happen. Do you have specific ideas around how to do that, how to communicate to people what they can and can't, should or shouldn't do? I think this gets really dependent on the individual parts of the system. Uh, a couple of general things. Um, I think it's probably a good idea to use a paper trail or some sort of gem that audits changes to your uh, database. Uh, paper trail is a, rail, uh, is a Ruby gem, and it, whenever if you uh, register an active record class with it, then anytime that active record class is saved, it saves a snapshot of the previous data in the paper trail uh, part of the database, uh, along with who made that change. So that at least gives you the ability to go back and see what has happened to data uh, in the same way that you might go back to you know your Git repo and see who changed the line of code. You can see who changed a piece of data. Um, I think that treating administrators as users of the system in the same way you treat your users as users of the system and going through the same kind of design and user experience process uh, that you do with actual users uh, can really pay off here. Um, a lot of times that is a hard thing to get, you know, people who have limited resources to spend on a website. Uh, that is, that, that's sometimes a hard sell um, uh, until the site's been running for a while uh, and they start to see, uh, you know, those issues happen in real time. Um, I can tell you that one other thing related to administration, especially as you get up uh, higher up in companies, is uh, reporting. So you mentioned that before. Yeah, uh, reporting is another thing, especially on this this one particular project that that I'm you know referring to a, a fair amount. Um, reporting is a thing that I didn't take super seriously at first, um, and reporting is how the business stakeholders in your application make decisions like it's the information that gets presented to them um and it can also be your interface with your accountants or your lawyers or whoever but it's also like internally how they tell you know how's the site doing today how many how much money came through today um and it's very data intensive uh and if you do it naively uh you will wind up with situations where you are really uh you're really stressing the site potentially uh, when application when when administrators want to run reports, um, and so you need to there, you know so you have some options. You can run reports as background jobs. Uh, you can partially calculate reports as as time goes on. You know partially cache. You can cache report data like when the report is first calculated, so that you don't have to recalculate it. Or you know every time a sale gets made or on a five minute background job, like you recalculate the day's receipts or something like that, so that when a, when somebody goes to look at their dashboard or the report that you give them, uh, it happens quickly because nothing has to be recalculated. It's also helpful if you can treat it as if you can generate the data into like some kind of intermediate format. Like if you can easily create your data as like a, a, an array of arrays, then it's very easy to output it as a CSV file or output it as a uh, HTML table or, you know, put it in a PDF or create graphs out of it, you know, uh, getting that data in sort of a generic format can be really helpful. Um, 
CSV, I think, is overlooked as the poor man's reporting format. Uh, you know, everybody sits with this incredibly powerful analytical engine on their desktop known as Microsoft Excel. So if you can get your application to spit out CSV reports, um, then your users can take them into the you know Excel, which is tremendously powerful at doing statistical analysis of data, uh, and go from there. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good way to get that kind of thing up and running. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, one other thing that I've noticed about this, and uh, it's in, I, I'm not going to add anything to the discussion on reporting, just because I mean, we basically covered the issues that I've seen. Um, you know, with you know data being available immediately to the people who care about it, and you know accuracy and things like that. Um, if you can, if you if you're looking at like your new relic or skylight trace, and you can tell at a glance when the administrator is hitting reports, uh, you, that's that's uh, should be a warning sign. Hmm. Yep. That's a good point. Um, one thing that I've seen though with money is that it's also it, you, you kind of don't want to screw it up, so you want to test yeah. it pretty thoroughly. Yeah. So, what, what techniques do you recommend for this? Because it usually involves a third-party right. gateway system, and so you can't just run it, or you can run it against their testing system, but then if you're offline or they're offline or there's some other issue. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, how do you get all so, of tested and running? Okay, so uh, one of the secret things about this book, which I think was also true of Rails test prescriptions, is that they're both secretly books about how to design Rails apps um, in the guise of either a book about how to test or a book about how to deal with money. Um, and I think a lot of... We spent a fair amount of time in the book talking about testing and talking about data modeling and things like that. Um when you're looking at testing this kind of gateway, um, I really there are a couple of techniques that I really like. I really like the technique of wrapping the gateway gem or the gateway API in your own object. So if you look at the source code for the book, uh, most of the code in the book uses Stripe. Stripe has a very nice Ruby gem. Uh, we wrap every one of it. So I have our own Stripe charge class and our own Stripe account class and our own uh, Stripe token class that do a couple of different things. Um, one of which is they translate between the domain concepts of my application and the specific naming conventions of the Stripe API. So I don't need to have the Stripe API naming conventions you know, go through my entire application. And secondly, they're kind of a backstop. Like I can, when testing, I can write stubs, uh, test doubles against those wrapper classes um, so I can write tests of the rest of my integrations that that stop at the point of my wrapper class because it's stubbed. Uh, and then I test the wrapper class directly against the Stripe API using VCR or something like that. The VCR is a Ruby gem that uh, the that that monitors uh, remote HTTP calls that you make during your testing. The first time you make the call, the call goes through as normal. The VCR gem spits out this YAML file with the details of the call, and the second time you run the test, uh, it stubs the results of that. It's, it takes that YAML file, and it takes the results from that YAML file and, and treats them as though you had really made the network call, even though you didn't. So that allows you to run the test offline, and it also allows you to run the test much faster. <laughs> um, to some extent, it reduces the need to actually stub the wrapper class in tests um, because effectively you're, you're, you're stubbing the result of the third party call. Um, 
but some but some combination of those things is kind of what I do. Uh, I try to have my own business logic interact with my own wrapper class. Um, I have this wrapper class that interacts with the third party gateway. Uh, I have tests that stub the gateway using VCR. In the specific case of Stripe, there are a couple of gems that actually act specifically as fake Stripe APIs. There's um, like a one of them is called Fake Stripe, uh, and one of them I don't remember the other one uh, offhand. Um, that's also I use the, I actually use the Fake Stripe gem in the book to trap uh, the Stripe JavaScript call. So I have a I have a test that tests the browser interaction, um, and it uses the Fake Stripe gem to return a, a token a Stripe token so that the rest of the test can go on accurately. Um, all of those techniques kind of work. Um, I think that, that isolating individual pieces of your workflow um, so that they don't interact with each other very much and that they only interact with the gateway through your own, you know, through a single point of contact, uh, all that stuff makes it easier to test. And like I said before, um, testing failure conditions with most of the gateways with, um, known credit card numbers or known area codes that, that that trigger various kinds of failures um is also needs to be part of that so overall um what's kind of the point of this book like if there's one overarching theme or idea that people should pull out of this book what okay. is it uh, i think the theme is that the api call is actually the easy part um that as much as these Payment gateway APIs are tremendously powerful and give you access to this sort of ridiculously complicated credit card system so easily um, that within the logic of your application, that's kind of the easy part. Uh, it, it's how you how, how your site manages over time uh, is going to be dependent on how well you manage not making the API call, but how well you manage the results of that API call and how you manage against failures and the kind of data you store and the way that you deal with authentication and security and potentially like fraud analysis um, or, you know, all of those issues are, are things that are very unique to each individual site and really critical to the way that a, a site that takes in money is going to uh, last over time. You know, I, I have a hard time explaining what kind of site this is about. Because calling it a financial site makes it sound like I'm talking about bank software. Um, but to say like, oh, well, it's a site that takes in money is just weird. Like it's a weird, I haven't come up with a graceful way to describe the kinds of sites I'm talking about here. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, sites usually either informational or take some money or it could be both. Yeah. But yeah, but I, yeah. there's no special classification of website that, oh, this one takes money. Yeah, but if your application takes in money and is using these payment gateways, uh, then the important part is to understand, you know, to to really understand how your own business logic interacts with those gateways and how the inputs to those out gateways and the outputs from those gateways uh, are are really necessary and, and critical to the way that your site's going to operate. Sounds good. If people want to find out more about this topic or if they want to get a copy of your book, what should they do for that? So the book is available from Pragmatic Press, which is at it's pragprog.com. Um, I think it's slash books slash NR web pay is the URL, um, but you can search for it as Take My Money. Um, I, I, I pitched the book as Shut Up and Take My Money, but they, they, they didn't go for the, all of that. Um, 
I also want to want to call out the cover, which is like a, a shopping cart wire made of a mouse cord, uh, which is a fantastic uh, image that they picked for it. It's it's I really it's really great. Um, so yeah, so that's where you can get it. It's available in beta ebook right now. Uh, the ebook will be draft complete probably in about two or three weeks, uh, and then it will go through the production process. And the production process should the the physical book should be out in late February, early March. I think we might have had to push back a week because uh, we added another chapter right at the end. Um, it's available on Amazon for pre-order as a physical book. Um, you can also find out information about it by following me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Noel Rapp, N-O-E-L-R-A-P, uh, or at noelrappin.com. We'll have information about it too. Awesome. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Sure, I do have a couple. Um, okay. you want, would you like me to go? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, I have two things I want to talk about, uh, a book and a podcast, uh, or an author and a podcast. Um, the author is N.K. Jemison. Uh, she recently just won the, the Hugo for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year for a book called uh, The Fifth Season, which is outstanding. Uh, and the sequel to it uh, called The Obelisk Gate just came out. Uh, they're really, she writes, a, she's written a number of really wonderful, um, uh, fantasy novels. The fifth season takes place in a world, uh, which has extinction level earthquakes on a regular basis and has a class of people who can, uh, control them or cause them, uh, and, and has some very interesting things to say about, uh, power and relationships with people in power and, um, what it means to be powerful but have low status in society at the same time, um, and it's just and it's also beautifully written. Uh, it's, it's it's wonderful. She's her books are really great. Um, the podcast is called Flash Forward. Uh, I think the the creator's name is Rose Eveleth, and that podcast every episode takes a potential future scenario, uh, whether realistic or not. Uh, and starts off by presenting a couple of skits that are scenes from that future and then talks to various experts about whether it's possible or what would happen in that case. Um, so a recent one talked about um, what will happen when uh, politicians have to account for their entire social media history since they were teenagers. Uh, or another one talked about what will happen, uh, you know, whether it's possible to go to a meatless future, whether vat-grown meat or something like that is possible. Um, then another one said, what would happen if every volcano on the planet went off simultaneously? So there's a wide range. Um, it's really good. And I think a lot of people listening to this will like it. I want to hear a zombie apocalypse. Episode. I don't think she's done a zombie apocalypse yet. I might have missed it. I might have to check that out. That sounds yeah. really interesting. All right. I've got a couple of picks this week. Um, the first one is, um, and this is more of kind of a, just a local Utah thing, but uh, I was going to pick up my kids from school. And uh, there was basically I saw like nine or ten police cars fly past, um, you know, one of them slowed down long enough to indicate to me that I needed to back back out of the intersection because I had pulled into the intersection to turn left. Um, and it turned out that there was a bomb threat at one of the local elementary schools and uh, they got in there. They took care of it. Nobody was hurt. It was really um, anyway, I'm just going to uh, pick police officers that do a great job um, all over the world. You know, when when this kind of stuff goes down, they're running toward the danger, not away from it. And I just I think that's awesome. So um, I'm going to pick them. And then um, 
I'm also going to pick, there's another tool that I've been using lately called Webinar Jam. Uh, it wraps over the top of Google Hangouts, Hangouts on Air, which I hear is going to be merged into YouTube as YouTube Live officially or unofficially or something. I keep hearing rumors about it, but I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on there. Anyway, Webinar Jam provides um, chat, polling, um, and a bunch of other stuff that uh, sits in a plugin for the presenter. And then it also provides that those same features for uh, participants so that they can chat with the presenter and things like that. And uh, that's what I'm planning on using for the Ruby Rogues uh, What Comes Next um, webcast that I'm doing in a couple days. Uh, I also used it for Angular Remote Conf last week. And I've used it for a webinar that I put on last week and another webinar that I'm going to be putting on tomorrow. So uh, anyway, I, I think it's a terrific tool. It works great, has all kinds of great analytics in it. Um, you get the HD quality from Google Hangouts and... Yeah, I just can't say enough good things about it. So, Well, if that's all we've got, I just encourage you to go uh, follow Noel and check out uh, what he's working on because he's always putting out good stuff. Yeah, keep posted. Uh, for Keep looking at noelrappin.com for both uh, things about the book and uh, follow me on Twitter for the book and whatever else I might be doing after that. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll catch you all next Great. week. Great. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Bye.